Uh, this morning we are continuing in our series called Love is Called My Name, and, this, and we're going to sort of switch gears and transition this morning and begin uh, a lengthy look at the book of Galatians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches uh, in the 50s, more or less A.D. It's a book that's all about the gospel, all about what the gospel is, what it means, and how the central message of Jesus can change the world. So let's begin here in chapter 1 at the beginning. Seems like a fit place to begin. It's where Paul began after all. All right, little joke there. No one's in the mood to laugh. Okay. Wasn't a good joke, but it's, maybe it's all you're getting today. There you go. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's God's word this morning. In 1738, a group of spiritual seekers gathered in London, England to explore and find out what it meant to actually know God and what it meant to encounter Him. They were a group of people who were searching, they read, they studied, and then one day this group of people found something that unlocked the mystery of who God was and what the Bible was all about. This group of people stumbled across a book, it actually was a commentary written by a man named Martin Luther, and the book was Luther's commentary on on the book of Galatians. It was his thoughts on the truths that are in the book we're going to begin to look at right now. And after that, after this group of people found that book and encountered it, everything changed for them and for the world. Because that little group was led by none other, none other than John and Charles Wesley. And they went on to change the face of Western civilization through something that historians now call the Great Awakening. It was a period where thousands of people on both sides of the Atlantics were converted dramatically to faith in Jesus Christ. And thousands of churches were started during this period. And, and acts of public mercy and, and service and justice were so commonplace that the very moral fabric of two nations was changed. So what was the turning point? Uh, What took them from seeking God to then changing the world? Well, one night as this little group met, a man named William Holland read the beginning of Luther's book out loud. And this is what William Holland said happened to him as he read. He said this, at a certain point, There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. 
My burden fell off in an instant. I was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. <coughs> I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees. And afterward, when I went out in the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Yeah, it changed his life. And from that night on, as Galatians and Luther's commentary on it were read, person after person met God, and two nations were changed. See, what had they done? They had tapped into the same dynamite that, that Luther himself had tapped into centuries earlier when he came upon the dynamite that we're going to begin to look at this morning. See, for Luther, Galatians launched the Reformation. For Wesley, it sparked the Great Awakening. What could it do for you and me if we were to begin to understand it and apply the truths that are in this book? Well, I think actually history has already shown us. So what do we see here? Three truths today as we begin here in the first half of chapter one. Three truths that can change our lives today. Let's look at them. First, we're going to look at the hardest thing to remember. Second, the most important thing to forget. And finally, what's really worth fighting for. Let's begin here, number one, and just ask, what's happening here in the book of Galatians? And what's the hardest thing to remember? Well, our first clue is found in, quite simply, what Paul doesn't write here. Because this, after all, is a letter that Paul of Tarsus wrote to a group of churches in an area of the Roman Empire called Galatia. It was kind of like a state, you see. And the people who lived in the state of Galatia were called the Galatians. Kind of like, we're called what? Texans, right? We live in Texas. Some of you are uh, referencing your point of origin here. I think I heard Californians or New Yorkers in there. Paul's writing to the Galatians here. And there's something that he actually doesn't write to them here. And so the reason that's interesting is because, again, you see that when Paul, throughout the New Testament, when he wrote his letters, he always followed, followed the ancient and customary practice in letter writing of giving a greeting a salutation, and then offering thanks or appreciation towards the letter's recipient. In other words, in all his letters, he would always say, hello, and then this is Paul, and then I really love you. I'm so thankful for you. I really like you, and you, and you, and you're great, and I miss you, and when can we see each other again? And I long to be with you. This era, you know, without cars and planes and email is just dragging for me, and I, I want to be with you again. In every letter he writes, he says, I love you. I'm thankful for you. You're great. And every letter that is except for one. <laughs> this one, the book of Galatians. And here, he can barely get out his name and a hello before he launches into the place where the reader, the recipient, would normally expect a, a thank you and I love you, man. But instead, instead of that here, this is what the Galatians got. He said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. In other words, here's how he formally opens the letter. Dear Galatians, you must be joking. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You've all turned your back on God and deserted him in record time. That feel a little startling, yeah? A bit harsh, a little controversial. Well, it is. And it was. I told you there was some dynamite in here, right? And if we're preaching this accurately, there's just going to be some startling and probably some controversial things you're going to be hearing over the next few weeks. I hope that doesn't throw you. I actually hope that excites you because it means that we're hopefully getting down to what's really in the book. So now let's ask, well, what in the world has set him off? Why has he got this bee in his bonnet? What have they done? 
quite simply, they had forgotten the gospel. That's it. That's why he's upset. They'd forgotten it because he goes on to say, I'm amazed you so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you, you Christians, (laughs) you church people, you have deserted. You have forgotten. You have abandoned the grace of Jesus for a different gospel, for a different message. And we'll look at that, what that exact message was in the weeks to come. But this morning, I just want you to see this about this verse. This verse here shows us right away that the book of Galatians, this book that's all about the gospel, this book that's about the central message of Jesus Christ, the central message of the Christian faith, that this book isn't first for outsiders. It isn't even first for non-Christians. Now, of course, this book can change a non-Christian's life too. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, in a sense, you couldn't have picked a better morning to be here. You're going to come face to face with the message this church is really all about. But what this shows us right here is that the gospel isn't just for outsiders, isn't just for non-Christians. If you're a Christian here, It shows us that the gospel is for you. See, Paul is showing us here that the gospel is for Christians. Gospels for Christians. Uh, Early on, when I was first sort of beginning and starting out in ministry, I used to think, and maybe you think today, that the gospel, you know, it's just kind of the introductory part. It's sort of like the intro to the whole thing, to the Christian faith. And, and after, you, after you receive it for the first time, well, then you, you just kind of move on. You know, kind of like the gospel is the milk. And everything else is the meat. Maybe you've heard people talk like that before. But that's actually not what the Bible means or talks about at all when it talks about the gospel. See, the book of 1 Peter, you flip over to 1 Peter, it says that even angels long to look more deeply into the gospel. Think about that for a minute angelic beings who live for an eternity, who are in a a sense closer to God than you are, they can't get enough of it. How about you and me today, huh? See, Paul here, he's telling them, oh, Galatians, you've got problems in your life and your faith, oh, it's on the edge of disaster. Your church is about to fall apart, not because you haven't moved on to deeper truths, but you and your life and your church and your faith are in shreds and tatters because you have. You've moved on. See, Galatians, you have moved on from the gospel, and it's killing you. It's killing you. See, the gospel, therefore, isn't just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of the Christian faith. There are many things, many things the Bible teaches us how to live in Christian community, how to use spiritual gifts, uh, how to uh, happen upon and bring about cultural transformation. And listen, man, sign me up for both of those, all of those with both hands raised. But all of those, see, all of those flow out of the gospel itself. And if we get what's upstream wrong, what's downstream is going to be off. It's going to be, we're going to have a problem with it. Think about it. Uh, when, the, when the folks in the Roman church, the good Roman church, they couldn't get along in community, what did Paul remind them of? Thank, thank you, Pastor Brett. The gospel, all right. The pastor got it here. It's kind of like, yeah, you're, you're qualified to be on staff here. Okay, all right. Very good. Uh, this is kind of like Sunday school for pastors. Everything's Jesus in Sunday school. It's the gospel for pastors. Okay. When the folks uh, in, in the Corinthian church, when they were abusing 
spiritual gifts, what did Paul use to set them straight? Thank you. All right. When the, when the good folks in Thessalonica were off about the end times, what did Paul remind them of? Yeah, that's right. What the gospel is and what it means. And that's why he's so upset here. He knows if the church loses this, it loses everything. This is everything. So now let's ask three quick questions. What is the gospel? What does it mean? And why, apparently, is it the hardest thing in the world to remember? So what is it? Well, actually, Paul's already told you. As you would imagine, in this book about the gospel, he can only get like three verses in before he's got to give it to you in verse 4. And here's what he says. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, who get in Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's it. That's the heart of it. And as we'll see, actually, Paul gives us these brilliant summary statements in every chapter as we go. And this is the first. The gospel is, as he says here, verse 4, that God has come in the flesh as Jesus of Nazareth and has given himself for our sins to rescue us, to rescue us. And then who does it say designed the whole thing? Oh, God the Father, right? You've got in one verse, I mean, you've got divinity. You've got substitutionary atonement for those theologians keeping score at home. You've got the sovereignty of God all here in one sentence. You say, well, what about me? I mean, where do I show up in this? All right, let's ask, where do you show up in this? It says here, you show up in this as a person in need of rescue. (laughs) And that's not a compliment, by the way. Your need of rescue. The gospel it doesn't say here that the gospel says you're a person who's just in need of a little help. The gospel doesn't say you're a person who just needs some additional education to be fine. No, it doesn't say you're just a person in need of some counseling or some, you know, some good therapy. Although that's great too. No, it says you're a person fundamentally in need of rescue. Can a person who's in need of rescue, like drowning uh, in, in the ocean or, or, or about to be trapped and die in a burning building, can they rescue themselves? No. Otherwise, it wouldn't be rescue. It would be self-salvation. See, the only way a person can be rescued is when someone, something comes in from the outside and saves and rescues. So what does this say that you have had to do with your salvation? Nothing. Nothing at all, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, it actually means a lot of things, a number of things, and we'll get to some more of those next week, but minimally, it means this. It means that anything else but this, but this message that God saves by His sheer grace alone, it isn't the gospel. It isn't. Paul says, you Galatians, you're turning to another gospel which isn't the gospel at all. What's he saying? He's saying there can be a number of things uh, that Christians, that we sort of have an intramural debate about, right? Uh, like baptism, uh, spiritual gifts, church government, the end times, for those of you who like such things, you name it. He says, but when it comes to this, he says it's this or it's nothing. This or nothing. If you're off by an inch, you might as well be off by a hundred miles, which brings us now to the third little question. If all of this is so amazing and good, why is this so hard to remember? And the answer is, it's because we as human beings are so hardwired to think there is something that we must do or could do or should do or should be made to do to put ourselves right with an almighty God. To the natural mind, the natural person says, where's the sword, God? God. 
I'm going to pull from the stone. Where's the ring, right? I'm going, to, I'm going to throw into the fire. But the gospel says, oh, there was something to be done. There was someone who needed to go into the fire, but it couldn't have been you. It's actually been done for you. See, the gospel isn't a natural message. As Paul says, this isn't from man. Man couldn't have made it up. It's supernatural. See, we forget the gospel because it goes against the grain of our nature, which says that we are, which we believe, we are only loved if we are good enough, pretty enough, successful enough, work hard enough. See, we forget the gospel and what it means because we cannot fathom the staggering depth of the love and heart of God for us. We keep trying to add something to it. It, can't, it just can't be that good. Martin Luther said this. He says, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness because there is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. And quickly, let me show you why this is true through two ways that churches forget the gospel and move back towards what he calls works righteousness. First, uh, there's, the, there's the way that liberal churches approach the gospel. Liberal churches say, by and large, you know, the love of God. Oh, the grace of God. It's so good. But, but can you just drop the part uh, about how people are lost? apart from Jesus. Can you just drop the part about every person being in need of rescue because that's really offensive to sincere people from other faith systems. It's offensive to the sincerely good people. Well, what are they saying? They're saying that human sincerity is a substitute for God's salvation. They're adding in sincerity, saying that sincerity can save. But that misses what Jesus himself said about his own wedding feast, about who he receives into eternity at the end of time. He says the only ones who get in are the good and the bad, but only one, the ones only that get in are those wearing the garment, the attire, the covering that he provides them. The liberal churches would say, Morgan, man, don't get so worked up about all this. You know, you're like one of the good people. You're a pastor person. Surely you're good. I would say this. Don't cast me into despair or rob me of the hope I have for my heart. You don't know my heart, what it's capable of. I need a savior. See, what are liberal churches adding? Oh, sincerity. Right? But conservative churches, by and large, go from a different angle. They would say, well, yes, Jesus is the way he rescues you, but only if you are baptized in our church or you only commit a handful of sins you know, that are relatively minor and don't add up to much over the course of your life. If your effort is really strong, then you can know you're saved by what you've done. Well, what are they adding? Well, not sincerity, but what? Morality right? Morality. Both churches, therefore, add something, a kind of work to the gospel. And that's why anything but Christian righteousness is works righteousness. And which is why both the liberal church and the conservative church approach are both works-based. And why, in the end, you don't really see lives changed much there either. See, in the liberal churches, there's nothing to be saved from. So what's the big deal? What's so exciting about Jesus, right? But in conservative churches, functionally, you're your own savior. So how could you have the energy (laughs) to get excited about Jesus? You're either lethargic on one end or burned out on the other, but you're not this. 
you're not this. See, this message is what sets the heart on fire, what sparks reformations, what launches great awakenings. And now, can you understand why Paul is so upset? The gospel of grace is everything. But it's the hardest thing to remember. It's the hardest thing to remember. But remember it, we must. All our problems flow from forgetting it. And all our breakthroughs come when we remember it and apply it and it's spiritual dynamite to our hearts. Let me show you how. That brings us now to number two, to the most important thing to forget. So, okay, let's ask now. We're going to transition here. And that's the teaching you just heard, but let's look at how we would apply this. How do we uh, apply? How does that message or the unconditional acceptance of Jesus change us? Well, right away, Paul goes into the first area, arguably the most critical area to forget and the area we will forget if and when we are remembering and using the gospel. And here it is. He says this. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to, to please men, to change my lives to what other people want? That's what that word means. He says, If I were still trying to please men, accommodate myself to men, live for men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And here's what he's saying. Paul is saying, Because I have the approval of God, I have forgotten about the approval of others. See, most people, and probably you today, you live and die by the approval of others. Will I get that call back? Will I get the sale? Will I make it on the edition? Will they accept me on the team? See, we live for that, and when we forget the gospel and who has saved us and loved us, we will inevitably work for some other kind of approval, some other person's kind of approval, and it will wear us down and ultimately kill us. Let me show you how this works through, unfortunately, a story in my life. A, a, a couple of years ago, there was a series of unfortunate events. If you're familiar with children's literature, you know that reference. It left me feeling unbelievably drained in what I do. And as a result, what, what had normally been a joy for me overall, which was pastoring and leading, and I love it, it began to feel unbelievably heavy and weighty. Uh, my health started to suffer, and I'm used to being in good shape and trying to take care of myself. Uh, uh, I got a raging eye twitch. My heart started feeling funny. One morning, I got up literally unable to walk. I limped through the holidays, pun intended, uh, but I never fully really recovered. And I, I found out later that those sorts of things were not really uncommon uh, to happen to pastors in growing churches like ours. That the size church that we were at the time was actually the most detrimental uh, to the point person's health. But regardless, I needed a breakthrough. And maybe you do too. So what would I do? What would you do? What could you do? Well, I decided to double down on my own effort. Decided to work even harder on my preaching, you know, really multiply my community group to, uh, to obey 1 Corinthians 14 when it says they eagerly desire spiritual gifts. You know what? All those things happen, I think. But I still felt drained. Still felt drained. And my internal monologue began to go dark. And maybe some of you were there this morning. You know, your internal monologue, when it goes dark, I can't do it. It's not going to work out. Failure is inevitable. People don't love you. No one sees you. No one appreciates you. See, over and over and over again, and therefore over time through no one's fault but my own, I began to resent what I was doing. Inexplicably tired, fatigued all the time. My time with God was diminished. I felt dry. And then one day, God came and he asked me a question. He said, are you doing this 
for them or for me? Oh. And you know, when God asks you a question, he's just in general going to know the answer. Uh, You see in Genesis 3, he asks Adam, where are you hiding, Adam? I'm pretty sure God knew. See, it's Questions are more of a rhetorical device God uses in our lives. And the same was true for me. You know, in baseball, if you take your eye off the ball, there's just no way you can hit. You can have the perfect swing, mechanics, weight transfer, but if you don't do one thing and keep your eye on the target, you'll begin swinging like my eight-year-old does, increasingly harder with more frustration, anger, and likely injury that's going to occur. And you know, in life, it's just the same. Our souls become worn down when we take our eye off the target. And I shared what I was going through with a friend at the time, and he offered a scripture that Paul wrote over in Romans that's basically another version of what we see in Galatians 1.10 here. And here's the verse. It's in Romans 14. And see if you can make the connection between the two. He says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. See, there's an order here, isn't there? Acceptable to God, then approved by men. I, maybe like you, have been going at it in reverse, going after the thanks and approval of other people first. The scripture tells us it's not wrong to be approved by men but it is wrong to live for the approval of men and women. See, there's an order here, though. The Scripture tells me if I live my life out of the sense of security, knowing that God loves me and He's accepted me, I'll actually come to be accepted by others in the end. And how does that happen? Oh, look at this word here. The word for approved, the kind of person that's approved by others. This word isn't just actually any word. It's technically a Greek technical term for a certain kind of person in that culture. It's the word dokimos. And here is what the dokimos was. This is from Donald Barnhouse's commentary on Romans. He said, in the ancient world, there was no banking system as we know it today and no paper money. All money was made from metal, heated until liquid, poured into molds and allowed to cool. When the coins were cooled, it was necessary to smooth off the uneven edges. The coins were comparatively soft. And, of course, many people shaved them closely. In one century, more than 80 laws were passed in Athens to stop the practice of whittling down the coins in in circulation. But some money changes were men of integrity who would accept no counterfeit money. They were men of honor who put only genuine, full-weight money into circulation. Such men were called dokimos, and this word is used here for the Christian as he is to be seen by the world. In other words, the dokimos was someone, catch this, who wouldn't allow a whittled down version of their work out in public. It was a challenge, right? Because whittled down work was everywhere. And the truth is that I had become, maybe you've become, we can all become whittled down in our souls by the incessant cutting on, by, by pressures, uh, by others, by the devil, and just being incessantly whittled on by the circumstances and challenges and problems and pain and pressures of life. But God calls us to be different kinds of people, to not allow ourselves to become a whittled down version of ourselves that we then offer to others. God calls us to not allow ourselves to shortchange others with bitter souls, see, bad attitudes, selfish hearts. But the question is, how can we be that? 
How can we be the dokimos? Well, verse 17 tells us how. Paul says, it's he who serves Christ in what? In this way. In this way. And what's this way? He's saying the kingdom of God, man, the gospel, God's royal power looks like this. Not focusing on eating and drinking. It's the everyday decisions of life. But we've all got to make those. And Paul recognizes that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written a whole chapter about eating and drinking and the daily decisions of life. But he says, in the end, the gospel, the kingdom of God, is going to look like, is going to be in your life this. He says it's righteousness, peace, and what? And joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I think we've got a slide for that. Yeah. Wait for it to come up here. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I'd like for you to see it. All right, we'll move on. No worries. You can remember it. Write it down. The kingdom of God actually ultimately looks like joy. It looks like joy. My ministry ought to look like joy. It ought to feel like joy to you. This church, when you walk in, it ought to feel like joy. We ought to, church, and we can have, that's the point of this, hearts of joy that our families, our spouses, our children experience from us. Do people taste joy in your life? Taste joy in your life. They need to. Does joy overwhelm you? Flow in your soul. It can. How? Oh, through the first word here. It's the word righteousness, Paul says. And this is not the word for our holiness, for our right behavior, doing right and wrong. No, this is a legal term. It's the word diokosune in the Greek. It's a status that we have with God. This righteousness, this word, is the word a judge speaks over a pardoned person, a person who's been declared free forever. And because now we are pardoned, can you see? It brings us peace with God. And then what? Joy in our souls. Joy is going to spring up. See, when you know you're accepted by God and you live out of that, what's going to happen? Man, you're going to be so secure. You're going to quit making everything about you. And about every conversation about you, what they said about you, what they didn't say about you, right? Quit filtering everything that happens through whether or not it feels good to you. And when you start living like that, oh, watch what happens. People are just going to start liking you a whole lot more. They're going to have to have you around. They're just not going to be able to get enough of you. They'll approve you. Why? Because you've got the secret sauce of Galatians going on underneath the approval of God. That's what they're tasting. Oh, do you want? Do you need joy in your life? Paul's saying this. Get spiritually high, spiritually drunk on your justification. How does that happen? Oh, here we go once more with Martin Luther, one of my favorite quotes of all time. Maybe you've seen me bring it out before. And by the way, as long as I'm pastoring here, you're going to continue to see it. Because I want to remind you of this. Because I want you to live in the joy the gospel carries in it. Luther said this. Here's how you get joy. Learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to Him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. See, joy comes from our justification, from the gospel, which is what? That Jesus was the ultimate treasure that was whittled down for us, right? He wasn't just cut on, was he? No, he was cut off that we could be brought back in for the joy set before him. He endured the cutting, the whittling down that we, our souls, our lives could be restored 
and brought back and then given to others. And that's why, friends, Charles Wesley could write the words, the, the battle cry of the Great Awakening. It's the words Carrie and I actually have on, on the walls of our home. He wrote this. He said, And can it be that I, I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me to him who death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Second verse. He goes on to say, no condemnation. Now I dread. He's saying, well, what other people think about me? I don't dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine. Now bold I approach the eternal throne and claim what? The crown crown through christ my own he's saying look what i got man look what i got world i've got a crown i've got approval of god in his eyes i'm royalty i'm royalty listen isn't theology practical it's totally practical changes our hearts so but listen look it's going to be in our lives one or the other either you will labor and kill yourself to get the approval of others or you can rest on god's approval What are we supposed to remember? (laughs) The gospel. Yeah. What are we supposed to forget about? Living for the approval of others. Which brings me now to number three. Let's close. Look in this way. What's really worth fighting for? It's a little different kind of a close. More of a thought this morning. I want you to sort of consider. Do you think what you've heard this morning, if you're a Christian, is worth fighting for in your life? Now, before you answer that too quickly, because none of you did anyway, all right, let me ask you another question. Who's the hero of your life? Is it you? Who's the hero of the Bible? Is it you? Is the Bible more about how great people are and how great you can be, or is it more about how great God can be? A few years ago, there was actually a really famous comic book storyline called Kingdom Come. That'll get your attention. And underneath its artwork and characters, it posed the question, what kind of heroes do people want? What kind of heroes do people need? Uh, The storyline pitted Superman and all the classic, you know, upstanding, morally righteous, black and white superheroes on one side versus the more modern, anti-hero, flawed, everything's gray, sort of violent, dysfunctional superheroes on the other. And these two groups were battling out for supremacy of the world and really for supremacy in people's hearts. It was asking, what kind of hero do people want? So let's ask, well, what kind of hero do we want today? Well, you look 60 years ago in World War II, President FDR, he was in a wheelchair, but we never saw him photographed that way. It was rare to find a photograph of him in a wheelchair. Why? Because heroes, we thought at the time, aren't weak. Heroes never let you see them sweat, right? Now, today, by contrast, we know all about our president's flaws, probably more than we ever wanted to know about our president's flaws. Why? Because we don't like morally upstanding people telling us what to do. We prefer morally flawed leaders who let us off the hook. People, a few years ago, 20 years ago, resented Mother Teresa after she died for her impeccable character. The people celebrated Princess Diana because of her, her own celebration of her flaws and immorality. See, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the king uh, Aragorn, he was always, in the movies, he's always doubting himself, unsure, insecure of who he is. But originally, in the books, he never questioned who he was. He knew exactly who he was. His only question was, when do I reveal and bring my power to bear on the world? 
See, the books were changed to keep up with the times. Because conviction is out, doubt and questioning is in. And of course, you and I, man, you can laugh and scoff all you want to at comic books and now the glut of superhero uh, movies and TV shows coming out. But when, when we see that happening, a trend like that, it should tell you something about our national culture and our collective hearts. And what it tells us is this. That even in an age of cynicism and skepticism, we still want, our culture is desperate for stories about someone greater than ourselves, someone who can come in from the outside and rescue us. Oh, but the modern art critic today, the modern art critic doesn't like that. It says, we don't need more stories about superheroes. What we need to make is gritty, realistic, dark, grim, depressing, violent fiction and stories and put them on the screen. And so Hollywood keeps churning out dark movie after depressing movie, even though by and large no one goes to see them and they don't make any money. And they keep giving Oscars. I mean, Oscar awards come out. You're like, what is that movie? Man, what's that about? I would never go see that. They keep giving Oscars and awards to these dark, depressing movies that nobody goes to see. And do the art critics chagrin? What do people go see and buy and read? Oh, fantasy books, right? Romance novels, <laughs> superhero movies. And what are all of those things? They're rescue stories. They're all rescue stories. What are the top three movies in the world this year all about? One is about essentially a military superhero who rescues his friends from certain death. Another is about a group of people, a group of superheroes who have super fast cars instead of superpowers. And the third is essentially a fairy tale about a, a prince who rescues a bride. Before you scoff at that, let us not forget too quickly that's the basic plot line of the Bible. So, why do we go see these movies? It's this. Because our hearts need them. Our hearts need them. Our hearts, people's hearts, the heart of a human being, no matter what a skeptic or critic may say, it goes after and always will these kind of stories. But why? Because they remind us of what we forget, that we can't save ourselves. They remind us that we need a rescuer, that we need a hero. But what kind, right? A rock or a reed, a strong or a weak hero. But the beauty of the gospel is... It actually doesn't make you pick. doesn't make you pick. Look at Jesus. He saves not through strength, but through weakness on a cross. And But because of that, now he's exalted, and his strength becomes yours and mine and ours today. It's a paradoxical heroism, but it's the kind our hearts most need. Because Jesus, you see, is the hero of the Bible. He's going to be the hero of history. He's the hero of this church. And he ought to be the hero of your life. And that, that is what Paul is fighting for in Galatians. Who's the hero of history? Who's the hero of the church? Who rescues? Jesus. Jesus does. And therefore, what is worth contending for? the gospel, uh, the gospel. And that's what we're going to be doing in the weeks to come, contending for, contending, fighting for what's really important, what really matters. Because as Paul said, last verse, because to God, to God, him, him be the glory forevermore. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come now thanking you for these truths, thanking you for this, what Galatians shows us, a rescue story, a rescue plan launched into history to save our hearts, redeem our lives. And Lord, we long for the power of that to be ours today. 
If you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I, I've, as I, you were speaking, Morgan, I noticed a, have noticed in my life a distinct lack of joy. Lack of joy. But yet I want it. I want joy in my life. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Pray for you, yes. So many of us. And as you have your hands raised, let me just tell you this one thought before I pray for you. Joy is not natural. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which must mean it's supernatural, which means going about it by natural means, natural ways and ideas won't cut it. It won't get you there. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural effect the gospel has on the heart. And so, Lord, I'm praying for these this morning that they would not just move on to something else where they would go back to remind themselves of who they are and whose they are. Lord, and what you've done for them. And if you didn't spare your own son, but you gave Jesus up for them all, how much more will you graciously give them all things? Lord, let joy now flood their hearts, flood our hearts, flood this church with joy that we could offer that fruit, that taste to the world. In your name I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.